1: Welcome back to another episode of Naked Neuroscience, the podcast exploring the workings of the brain and the nervous system in our bodies and beyond. I'm Katie Haler and this month... The data
0: on loneliness and anxiety is the only data that's ever made me cry because the correlation between people's loneliness scores and their anxiety scores was so tightly coupled it was
1: almost a straight line. We're unpicking the neuroscience of loneliness, asking why do so many of us get lonely... What's happening in the brain when we are lonely, and what can be done to help? Plus, we'll be peeling back the science on some of the latest neuroscience research with the help of local experts. Let's jump straight in, as ever, to some naked neuroscience news. Joining me this month to cast their expert eyes over the latest neuroscience papers were Duncan Astle from Cambridge University and Helen Keyes from Anglia Ruskin University. First up, take a moment. Have you had a busy day? Feeling worn out or stressed? Breathe in. Breathe out. Many of us suffer from work-related stress from time to time. And Helen looked at a recent paper which set out to remedy just this, in a way you might not expect. So the gold standard is
2: engaging in mentally engaging activities and physically engaging activities and socially engaging activities. Particularly if you can combine these, so team sports is something that's really singled out as excellent in reducing work stress and having positive knock-on effects. However many of us work very long hours and many of us commute and so the gold standard of engaging in team sports every evening isn't really going to work out for a lot of our lifestyles. The authors here were interested in looking at whether something we have immediate access to all the time, so our phones, whether they can be useful in reducing our work stress first of all they had to say what do we mean by recovery from work stress there has to be psychological detachment and what they mean by that is you have to not be thinking about work Mm -hmm. it has to be a relaxing task so jumping out of a plane isn't going to do it for you (laughs) (laughs) and interestingly it has to be a task that involves some level of mastery so a feeling of gaining a new skill and some level of directly controlling the output And the authors think digital games actually satisfy all of these criteria. So a puzzle game on your phone, for example. So they wanted to see, could this reduce work stress? Interestingly and controversially, they wanted to compare this with something that people claim relieves work stress, which is mindfulness, practicing mindfulness. And they could have a really nice comparison here because there are quite a lot of mindfulness apps available on your phone. And if we think about mindfulness, it could lead to this psychological detachment, not thinking of work, it, it's relaxing. It's a bit more iffy as to whether it leads to a sense of mastery and control. I'm sure if you're very good at mindfulness, it might do those things. And the evidence in general on the usefulness of mindfulness is is quite mixed so they brought people directly into the lab in their first study they brought 45 participants in and gave them a work task that's considered quite stressful so they gave people maths tasks to do for 15 minutes and then those participants were divided into three groups and they were either asked to play a puzzle game on a phone for 10 minutes to do a mindfulness exercise using an app or a control condition was to just use a fidget spinner for 10 minutes before this task, uh, participants' energetic arousal and their recovery was measured. So, Is that how much energy have you got to stick the cooker on and
1: make some dinner after you get home from work, that
2: kind of thing? That's an excellent description of that scale, how much emotional and cognitive energy you have available to you and also how relaxed you feel and how in control, things like that. They measured this before people did the stressful task, directly after the stressful task and then following the relaxation intervention. And they found that participants' energetic arousal increased following the, playing the game. So between time two and three, after you've done the stressful task and then after the recovery period, the game was effective in recovering you, in increasing your um, energetic arousal, whereas the mindfulness app wasn't. So the authors wanted to take this out into the real world then and they asked 20 participants over five days to take part in these activities. So full-time workers, and immediately when they got in, they would do these energetic arousal and recovery scales. Half of them would engage in the mindfulness app exercise and half of them would engage in playing a game for 10 minutes, then do those tests again to measure their recovery. And again, they found that the playing the game was much more useful and much more effective in um, work stress recovery. And interestingly, they found that as the week went on, it became more and more effective. So if we think about recovery involving a sense of mastery or gaining a new skill, this makes sense because over the week, participants will be gaining more and more mastery over the game they were playing and getting more and more work stress recovery benefit from it. However, the opposite was true for the mindfulness um, app people. So as the week went on, this became less and less effective for them in terms of recovering their work stress.
1: Interesting. As an avid gamer, I'm guessing this is uh, sweet music to your ears. This is music to my ears. I can go home and tell my husband every day. It's work stress
2: (laughs) recovery, darling. Everything's fine. Um, So I think the take home from this really is we can't ignore that the best thing, the gold standard for work stress recovery is going to be a social and physical activity like a team sports. But taking out your phone and playing a game is going to be a really effective way of reducing that work stress. And we might controversially ask whether mindfulness is really just trying to do something that a video game already does and does better. And indeed, it has been suggested that perhaps we could put this as mindlessness is more effective at reducing work stress than mindfulness.
1: I do try and practice mindfulness. I find it really hard. Could it not be that being mindful is difficult and takes longer than a week to master whereas maybe a game is a bit easier to do so you get that sense of achievement? It absolutely could. Notoriously, mindfulness is
2: is hard to master. It's hard to switch off your mind. But then that begs the question, well, why don't we just recommend playing games if it's an easier way to access what we're trying to get at, which is is stress recovery and restoration? Why don't we just go straight to the game and Mm. skip
1: the the difficult Mm. middleman? equally the cynic in me has the suspicion that games are designed to be addictive, right? So what if you end up <laughs> what if you end up using your coping mechanism too much?
2: We should be cynical about this. Playing games often involves, you know, paying money as well, and so there are certainly are potential pitfalls to this. But if we're looking at a purely recovery basis, I think we can feel a bit smug finally. The way mindfulness people can tend to feel a bit smug, we can us gamers can start to feel
1: a bit smug about ourselves too. And I can feel less bad for not being very good at mindfulness. Absolutely. (laughs) Duncan, do you have any thoughts?
3: What's the evidence on whether phone app mindfulness tools are as effective as the kind of real deal mindfulness? Could be that what they've basically done is kind of compare a full bodied game with a kind of diet version of mindfulness and the diet version of mindfulness doesn't do anything. There Might be other benefits to mindfulness when it's done in its entirety.
2: If you have the time to go and do mindfulness training with a group of people, I mean, that's fantastic. It's getting closer to that gold standard of going outside and meeting people. That's fantastic. And you also mentioned other benefits of mindfulness. We have to take this in the context of the research around mindfulness. So this is is a very mixed field. So there are certainly studies that show other benefits of mindfulness and indeed show recovery benefits when practiced correctly, which is fantastic. There's an awful lot of studies that show no benefit of mindfulness and it could come back to what you were saying earlier about how good you are at practising. If this is what's available to people on their phone, it looks like games are a better quick fix than a mindfulness app.
1: Helen Keyes there. Now, Duncan looked at a paper asking whether socialising is associated with dementia risk. Over 28 years, this study has been tracking the lives of about 10,000 London civil servants, asking at various times throughout their lives how much social contact they are engaging in. And they did this thanks to open data.
3: Whenever you're asked about, would you like to share your personal data for research purposes, this is the kind of study that that makes possible. So they were able to access the electronic NHS records for all 10,000 plus participants. And what they could then test is whether or not there was a significant relationship between the amount of social contact participants had and their subsequent risk of getting dementia. And they found that there was a significant relationship. In particular, the amount of social contact when participants were age 60 was predictive of a lower risk of dementia in later life.
1: Does it depend on the type of social contact? Presumably you need to like the, the, people, <laughs> the people that you're hanging around
3: with. It's particularly friends and not relatives. Ah. Um, so it depends on how well you get on with your relatives, I guess, as to whether that fits your question. But it's mainly social contact with friends rather than relatives.
1: Was this regular social contact? Was there anything that could be inferred with regard to length of time or quality?
3: Well, good question. So they only actually have four questions on social contact, which they use at each time point. So they don't have massive amounts of information. Um, But yes, it's regular social contact. But we don't know too much about the nature of the social contact, just that it's mostly based with friends.
1: So what can be inferred from this relationship?
3: As with all of these kinds of studies, the big issue is cause and effect. Because we're looking at early social contact and subsequent dementia risk, we often might get ourselves into thinking, well, that means that the early social contact is causally related to subsequent dementia risk. But it also could be true that, say, at 60 years old, some participants are showing early symptoms of dementia. We think that the underlying pathology might start 10 to 15 years before very recognisable symptoms present. So it could be that the reason these two things are related is simply because some people have earlier signs of dementia and that impacts upon their social contact. That's why there's a relationship with dementia. But it's certainly exciting in the sense that those who have higher social contacts, so for instance, if you're in the top 15% on the social contact scale, you'll have a 12% reduction in dementia risk if you're in the top one or two percent you'll have a 24 percent reduction
1: those are pretty big numbers
3: yeah my suspicion is that it might partly be inflated by this idea of cause and effect but the underlying it there probably is some genuine effect that having stronger social contact has a generally positive benefit for brain health and that that then stands you in good stead in older age
1: helen do you have any thoughts
2: Is it possible or likely, though, that a third factor could be affecting both your social activity and your risk for dementia? So perhaps a personality factor could be driving both?
3: I think that's true for some conditions. As far as I know, there aren't particular personality traits that are predictive of dementia per se. But we do know that there are other underlying mental health conditions which themselves might then become risk factors for dementia. It's possible and hard to control for, that that might drive reductions in social contact earlier in life, and then also confers a greater risk of dementia in later life. And there's no direct link between social contact and dementia per se. Duncan Astle,
1: there. And if there's some neuroscience news you want us to look at, or you've got a question you'd like us to address, you can get in touch. Email neuroscience at com, Or you can find us on the Naked Scientist social media. It's at Naked Scientists on Twitter, Naked Scientists on Facebook, and we're even on Instagram as well. Naked Genetics is back. You're a mutant.
4: I strongly disagree. It's a labour of love, I'm sure. He would have had his mind blown. We have brand
1: new episodes coming each month, starting 14th of August with Mendel's
3: Trick, a trip back through time to the garden where it all began.
4: He is the person whose ideas led to the founding of the science of genetics. The story
1: of how one man took 30 years to become the figurehead for a brand new type of science. Find us on NakedScientist.com genetics or search for Naked Genetics
3: wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. And this month on Naked Neuroscience, it's a subject that's rather close to my heart. Loneliness. Loneliness is a huge issue. One study found that over 9 million UK adults are often or always lonely. The charity Sense found that up to half of all disabled people will be lonely on a given day. Loneliness is a feeling that probably everyone listening has experienced at some point. Through researching this topic for the show, I was surprised at how much we don't really know about loneliness in the brain. So, why is this? And what do we know? And what can we do to help the so many people who sometimes feel lonely? In this episode, these are the questions that I want to answer. First things first, to pin down what we actually mean by loneliness, I strolled over on a very sunny day to a park near the Adam Brooks Hospital site in Cambridge to meet mental health researcher and loneliness expert, Olivia Reams.
5: So loneliness is not the number of people that you talk to. It refers more to the quality of the relationships that you have. So for example, you could be surrounded by lots of people and feel lonely because you're not satisfied with By the relationships that you have. Or you could just have two friends, but if you feel that those people meet your social needs, then you're not lonely. If there's a discrepancy between the number and quality of the relationships that you desire and those that you actually have, then you're lonely. How many of us are lonely? It's about one in three people. There have been various studies that have looked at this, and in the UK, 21 to 31 percent of people report that they feel lonely some of the time but it's not just adults it's also children who feel lonely as well.
1: I guess everyone will have been a bit lonely at some point but are there members of society who are particularly vulnerable to being lonely?
5: definitely so uh, people who have recently lost somebody people who have been widowed if you moved away to a new city this can predispose you to loneliness it's a very difficult condition to deal with
1: are there specific behavior changes that you might expect in someone who is chronically lonely because it seems to be a little bit of a vicious cycle
5: yes definitely one of the main differences between people who are lonely and those who aren't is how they perceive the world if you are lonely you are more likely to see the threats in your environment you are more likely to think that others are judging you during social interactions and this makes you have negative views towards others it makes you not want to interact with others and to open up
1: Which, of course, doesn't help if actually what you're craving is more social interaction.
5: Exactly. So it's a vicious cycle, completely. You know, the more that you think like that, then the more that this changes your behaviour. And then you might start acting colder towards other people. And they can feel that, and they might think that you don't want to be friends with them. It's really the perception. It's not so much what you do, but what you think.
1: Olivia Reams there from Cambridge University. And
5: we'll come back to the
1: what you think part later. But before that, just how serious is feeling lonely? We know it's not very nice, but can it actually impact your health? As Olivia said, we're not talking about an objective measurement like how many people you see every day. We're talking about a feeling, an emotion, which because it's subjective can be quite tricky to measure. So, to pick apart the link between loneliness and health, here's trainee Dr. Isabel Cochrane.
6: It is reasonably intuitive that social isolation might be bad for one's health, as this state could potentially limit access to healthcare resources. However, it is less clear how experiencing the emotion of loneliness might be harmful. In order to try to measure loneliness distinctly from social isolation, Many studies use standardised questionnaires such as the UCLA Loneliness Scale. In this way, it has been found that the subjective state of loneliness in itself has a much bigger impact on a person's health than any other element of their social network, including number and frequency of social contacts and the presence of close relationships. In other words, it is reasonable to believe that any negative health outcomes are genuinely stemming from loneliness rather than social isolation. Another difficulty is that loneliness, rather than being static, is a state that fluctuates with time, and as one's social circumstances change. Any of us can feel lonely at any time, and some people feel lonely most or all of the time. Additionally, there is a well-documented loneliness trajectory across a lifetime, with the highest rates of loneliness occurring in late adolescence, a trough in middle age, and an increase once again in old age. There are intergenerational differences in the rates of loneliness, with millennials recently found to be the loneliest generation, much more so than Generation X or baby boomers. Many studies of loneliness look at a particular point in time or a short interval, rather than an entire lifetime, and therefore it can be hard to draw conclusions about the impact of chronic loneliness versus temporary loneliness, loneliness in young age versus loneliness in old age, and whether resolving loneliness can reverse the associated negative health impacts. Despite these caveats, there is reasonably strong evidence that loneliness leads to increased mortality, particularly in older adults. Strikingly, the effect of loneliness on mortality appears to be as great as that of smoking. It is not entirely clear what the mechanism of this effect is. Loneliness has been linked to a worsening of cardiovascular risk factors such as blood pressure and cholesterol, which may go some way to explaining this increased mortality. Indeed, the longer the period of loneliness lasts, the worse these measures of cardiovascular health become. Other research suggests that those who are lonely tend to lead less healthy lifestyles, drinking and smoking more, taking less exercise and seeking medical attention less, factors which also worsen cardiovascular health. This might lead us to think that those who are lonely have worse cardiovascular health because they lead less healthy lifestyles overall. But this does not appear to be the case. When studies control for these lifestyle factors, loneliness still emerges as an independent risk factor for mortality. This is now leading on to research into the potential effects of loneliness on a cellular and a molecular level. Lonely individuals show differences from hormone production all the way down to gene expression, in particular in ways that increase the levels of inflammation in the body and worsen the function of the immune system. Loneliness also impacts negatively on one's psychological well-being, with people with chronic and high levels of loneliness showing increases in all manner of psychiatric conditions, including depression, suicide and psychosis. One might consider this a chicken and egg scenario. Is the loneliness causing the psychiatric pathology? Or is worse social functioning due to a psychiatric condition causing the loneliness? However, there is evidence that measuring loneliness in an individual can predict the onset of depressive symptoms, whereas measuring the extent of depression in an individual does not predict the onset of loneliness, suggesting that it is the loneliness that comes first. In a similar vein, loneliness has also been associated with cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. It is tempting to think that this effect is due to social isolation, with an explanation that fewer social interactions lead to less stimulation of the brain and hence less good cognitive function. But once again, it emerges that poor quality and satisfaction with social interactions is much more predictive of the onset of dementia than a low number of social interactions per se. However, more research is required to show conclusively whether the loneliness precedes a cognitive decline or vice versa. All of the above makes a compelling case for us to try to reduce the levels of loneliness experienced by people at any age. However, there is no known intervention that can be administered by healthcare professionals that has been shown to be effective in abolishing loneliness and reversing its effects on a person's health. So, if you do have a friend, neighbour or colleague who you think might be lonely, today is as good a day as any to invite them over for a cup of tea.
1: Thank you, Isabel. Now, talking of having a cuppa and a chat, can the science behind social interactions tell us anything about being lonely? Antonia Hamilton is Professor of Social Neuroscience at University College London, and her studies include what's happening in the brain when you're having a face-to-face conversation. Often what we're interested in is what's different about when you're interacting with
7: another person. and So then we'll compare that to situations where people are doing the same kind of thing, but in a context where they're alone.
1: What kind of experiments can you do with people when they are with other people?
7: It's pretty hard to do traditional brain imaging methods. A lot of our neuroscience comes from MRI scanners, but in a scanner, you are inherently lonely. You're in a small, dark, noisy tube, and there's normally nobody else in the room, and you have to stay completely still, apart from pressing a couple of buttons. So it's generally an isolated situation. Whereas when we want to study face-to-face interactions, we use a newer brain imaging method called functional near-infrared spectroscopy, And that shines light through your skull, infrared light can get down to the brain surface and some of the light will come back to our detectors and we can use that to measure the blood flow in the brain. It's a hat that you can wear with the sensors in it and while you're wearing it you can move about, you can talk to people. There's an enormous number of contexts where we can now start to study patterns of brain activation that we just wouldn't even be able to consider in an MRI
1: scanner. What key areas of the brain are involved in making that connection with another person?
7: So the areas we're most interested in at the moment are commonly called the theory of mind network. There's a bit called temporal junction that's just sort of behind your ears, and the prefrontal cortex, so right at the front middle just behind your forehead. These areas are engaged when you're thinking about other people, when you're sort of imagining what other people think or judging their personality traits. But we're now also seeing these areas are very strongly involved in communicating with other people. We're hoping to find evidence that this network is particularly important for
1: having strong social connections. Do we know much about those areas in lonely people's brains? Not really.
7: Loneliness is quite a long-term state. Um, most of our brain imaging studies are looking at things that you can change on a minute-by-minute timescale, whereas loneliness as a sort of state of somebody's life it isn't going to be turned on and off on the kind of timescale that we do for our brain imaging studies.
1: And what particular studies are you doing at the moment? We're very
7: interested in understanding face to face conversations, what happens and what's different about being with a real person compared to being alone. So we're looking at that quite often in terms of the audience effect. When you're being watched by somebody else, your performance changes, but it can change in many different ways according to the context. If you're being watched by somebody who's friendly and supportive, maybe you're doing something that you're confident with, then your performance will get better when you're being watched. But if you feel you're being watched by somebody who's hostile or who's judging you and you're doing something difficult and you're anxious about failing, then your performance may get even worse in the context of being
1: watched. It's really interesting that you say that because we're living in an era where you can have virtual face-to-face communication. You know, I call my family on FaceTime or WhatsApp or something quite a lot. Do we know anything about whether that affects the quality of that interaction? We have a study we're writing up at the moment on
7: virtual conversations. Mostly, at least when you're on a good connection, it'll behave in a very similar way to a a real face-to-face conversation. Challenges come because if you're on FaceTime or Skype, for example, eye contact doesn't work in exactly the same way. The place where the camera is is not the same as the place of the person's eyes on the screen. And so you don't quite know if the other person's really looking at you or not. And on a bad connection, the timing may be bad. There's a bit of a delay between what you say and what the other person hears. So the quality of that connection is degraded. But people can get the same stuff out of it, I think.
1: I'm very conscious that we're doing an audio-only interview right now. We can't see each other's faces. And I'm wondering if when it comes to making good quality social connections... Can we say that face-to-face is just better? Do do we know that's the case rather than chatting on the phone, which is effectively what we're doing right now? I think communication can
7: be very effective on the phone, but it largely depends what it is you're trying to communicate. If we were discussing architectural plans, that would be much harder. (laughs) over a phone line (laughs) than when we're discussing general ideas but we know people are very very flexible in the way that they communicate and if one communication channel is closed down by the situation that you're in people will just make more use of another one.
1: From your perspective as a social neuroscience expert how do you think better understanding the brain in this context can help people who are lonely are there things we can take from from learning about social interaction and apply them to help with loneliness
7: we can take the general idea that you know that social interaction is important that it's valuable and that it really is worth making an effort to make these social connections i don't think our social neuroscience research yet has an answer that says this is the one thing to do and certainly we haven't got one pill or drug that's going to fix these things because loneliness is very much arising from context and from the way a person's interacting with the world. But I hope it helps to at least know that loneliness is real and that it it can be worth complaining about and that it can get better if you try to find ways to connect with other people and that, that having that social connection really is very valuable.
1: Antonia Hamilton there from UCL. Now, we might not know very much about the lonely brain, but we do know a lot about the anxious brain. Sarah Garfinkel, psychiatry professor from the University of Sussex and Brighton and Sussex Medical School in southern England, recently ran a study with 100 autistic people, who Sarah says are four times more likely to be lonely, and found a very strong correlation between anxiety and loneliness. The data on loneliness and anxiety
0: is the only data that's ever made me cry because the correlation between people's loneliness scores and their anxiety scores was so tightly coupled, it was almost a straight line. And in clinical research, we're used to seeing really, really varied and messy data. So to see such a tight correlation, I think, tells you something really profound about the way that anxiety and loneliness and depression are
1: interwoven together. What key areas of the brain do we know are involved in anxiety and depression? And does that give us any inkling of what a lonely brain might look like? You see, I think it might do we
0: see areas that are involved in emotion and bodily processing. So these are limbic areas or the insula, which is currently my favourite brain area, which is an area involved when your brain reads out bodily signals, like the pounding of your heart or hyperactivation to do with anxiety of the body will be represented in, in this area. And you see these emotion bodily areas, Um, more active in anxiety and depression and then conversely you see reduced activation especially in anxiety in areas that are involved in emotion regulation and regulation in general like the prefrontal
1: cortex. Does this say anything about the vicious cycle that it can be difficult to sidestep when you're lonely because it seems like being lonely can actually make it more difficult to make friends which makes you feel more lonely. You're completely right about this vicious cycle. Actually, people can
0: then be anxious and worried about social interactions and then also withdrawal is something that's very known to happen in people who are anxious and depressed. So I think it tells you something about how feelings of loneliness can be perpetuated. It also tells us something about potentially how loneliness and anxiety and depression can be targeted by activities which maybe target social interaction and helping people feel more included. It can also help us understand the conflicting results at the moment about how loneliness is presented and manifests in the brain. And at the moment, there's not a strong consensus on how this looks, but maybe tying it more to anxiety and depressive symptomatology would give us a more solid grounding about how we really know brain changes occur and showing effects that have been replicated many times.
1: Do you think we're getting lonelier? I'm I'm conscious that loneliness isn't just a problem for the elderly, I really,
0: really think we are. Um, Some of my other work is looking at dynamic physiological responding between individuals. So that is shared emotion in brain and body. And when we're with people and we can see them closely and they're sad, then they will have different signatures of the sadness. For example, their pupils will get smaller. And then if we look at them and we empathize with them, then our pupils get smaller too. We also have body language that mirrors the emotions of others. And this can really help us to feel connected to people. And actually, maybe we need to be close to people in order to have these dynamic physiological changes to allow us to share emotions. And if we're sharing emotions, then we're less lonely. We're not just having them ourselves. And then in the rise of social media and technologies that make us more far apart, like as texting and other things over the computer, um, we're potentially not able to share these physiological signals that allow us to share emotions. And that's actually creating an emotional divide between people.
1: Of course, some of these technologies are advantageous from the perspective of being able to communicate in a way that you might otherwise not be able to do, if, say, if you've, I don't know, moved halfway across the world or something. I think it's great to use these technologies.
0: And I think that actually, it's something just to be aware of to inform the technology, that maybe we need to make sure that we can see clearly people's pupils if we're communicating with them, see their body language, and allow these different technologies to facilitate the sharing of signals as the technologies
1: get more advanced. One thing I wanted to put to you is, I guess, the other side of the coin. Some people really like their own company. Yeah, Is there anything that we understand about any sort of neurological differences or I guess, is there any sort of biological component to that? See if you just prefer being on your own. It's
0: a great question. There's some interesting work that's been done on mind-wandering. This is something that you can do when you're on your own. And they were looking at the relationship between mind-wandering and feelings of loneliness. And they found it's what people think about when they're on their own, which was indicative of loneliness. So it wasn't time spent alone. It was whether they, when they do daydream, do they think about people who are close to them or do they think about people who are not close to them? You can... alone, but still have in mind people you care about. So that's one thing. But you're right, loneliness questionnaires ask how lonely people feel they're not looking at objective amount of time people spend alone because it's a very very subjective thing and some people do like solitude and that's absolutely fine and that's why loneliness probably is best got at by these subjective measures because it's a subjectively felt thing that doesn't necessarily correspond to any absolute index.
1: Sarah Garfinkel along the path of this episode, we've upturned several stones. What's going on in the brain when we're being social, the dangers of loneliness for your health, and just how interconnected loneliness, anxiety and depression seem to be. And knowing all of this is important for better understanding this feeling that affects so many of us from time to time. But what can we actually do to feel less lonely?
4: I am Robin Hewings, the Director of Campaigns, Policy and Research at the Campaign to End Loneliness, working with policymakers and people making a difference on the ground to reduce loneliness with a particular focus on older people.
1: How much do we know about what strategies work to try and help people feel less lonely?
4: So sometimes people can be lonely because... They don't feel that they're having the social relationships that they want to have with their parents or children or their partners. But sometimes it's more because of not having that broader group of friendships. And so there's some big differences in terms of the kinds of things that you can do about it. The amount of research that's happening in loneliness is going up and up but there's still a lot that we don't know. This is certainly not like something that has been intensively researched for decades and decades, but there are some practical things that we can do. Right at the beginning, we need to work out how to reach people who might be lonely, to understand what their issues are and what it is that's causing them to be lonely and what we might be able to do to help them, because it is very much about individuals. It might be connecting, reconnecting people to existing relationships that they already have but they've somehow rather lost the confidence or they've just got out of touch with people. Sometimes it can be taking people to groups, thinking about Older people often think about things like lunch clubs or other areas of of things that bring people together around mutual interests. The other thing which we can do, and we're doing some work with UCL on this, is that psychological approaches can help people to think differently about their social relationships and regain confidence and skills to have the social relationships that they need. Psychological services that can help people Improve their mood can help them to, to reach out and also to have some of the resilience that people might need when rebuilding social relationships so that if something doesn't go quite right, people don't take that so much to heart that they lose the ability to keep trying. Deepening our understanding of what's going on with lonely people can only be a good thing for tackling what is a really serious problem because it goes right to the heart of what it is to be human and what makes us feel valued and what makes us get up in the morning.
1: So if you were to give us some top tips for combating loneliness, what would they be?
4: As a whole society, loneliness exists in that context. So people who are living in poverty are twice as likely to be lonely than people who aren't. The whole ways in which people can be supported to come together, whether it's bus services in rural areas or having cafes and parks that are welcoming and can help people come together is really important, but also targeted action on loneliness by local councils and by the health service and charities, also, can make a real difference to finding people and getting them the support that they need. This is also about us as individuals. We can both try to create a society where it's easier for people to to reach out and to be friendly and create social relationships. There's some interesting research recently that people underestimate how much people liked talking to them when they've been talking to a stranger. We should be more confident that people will like us and that we can reach out and talk to others. And sometimes for people who are lonely, it's not the case that they need the government to help them, that people can do things to help themselves and to create the social relationships that they need.
1: Robin Hewing's there from the Campaign to End Loneliness. So although more research is certainly needed, it seems there are many things we can do to move towards a less lonely society. And if you're feeling a bit lonely, let me leave you with some advice from Cambridge University mental health researcher Olivia Reams, who we heard from earlier on.
5: There are certain things that you can do to become less lonely because there is this difference in how you perceive the world when you are lonely. You know, you think that others are more likely to reject you, that others are judging you and you do don't want to you are more cynical of the world and mistrusting of others so we have to change our minds when it comes if we want to become less lonely and there are some simple things that we can do just simply getting out there and talking to as many people as possible wherever you are normally you wouldn't think to talk with some people that you regularly encounter on a day-to-day basis like the person checking out your groceries at the store Or the bus driver. If you feel lonely, chances are that you don't really interact that much during the day. So it's important to go out there and talk with as many people wherever you are. And this won't just help you feel less lonely, but you begin to network with people everywhere you go. So that's really important. Another thing that you can do is to share about yourself. So often... People are told that if they want to make friends, if they want to feel less lonely, that they should just ask others questions. And while that is important for establishing that initial connection, it's not enough to make it meaningful. And when you have meaningful connections, that's when you become less lonely. So how can you do that? Well, it is to open up and share about yourself. Say what you like, what you think. Tell stories about yourself. What I've said is based on recommendations by psychologists. It's based on research. And when studies have looked at interventions that work for loneliness, they looked at many things. They uh, taught people how to compliment others because they thought, well, maybe if they're complimenting others, they're going to be better liked by others. Then they thought, well, what if we just simply gave those lonely people more social support, just simply physically added more people around the lonely individuals. But the thing is, when you feel like others are coming in to check on you, it kind of makes you feel more like a loser because you know that it's not genuine. The thing that really stood out that seemed to work was actually changing people's minds, their perceptions. And this is where CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, comes in. That's why it's important if you feel like you're really low to go see a therapist and they can help you with techniques and strategies that are tailored to you it's really important to be kind to yourself. Don't think, okay, how much am I going to change or how much have I changed in a week or in a month? Just take it day by day.
1: Olivia Reams. And sadly, that's all we have time for this month. Thank you, Olivia. And thank you to everyone else in the show. Helen Keyes, Duncan Astle, Isabel Cochrane, Antonia Hamilton sarah garfinkel and robin hewings we'll be back next time with more naked neuroscience and in the meantime it would be great to hear from you with any feedback or thoughts you have on what you've heard so far why not leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts or you can drop us an email it's neuroscience at naked scientists.com i'm katie Haler from the naked scientist team thank you so much for listening and until next time goodbye